As Chris said last week, we are getting to the end, and I would say we are at the end of the book of Romans. Um, We have today's sermon and then next next week's sermon, and then we are finished with the book of Romans. And I hope you have been blessed and will be blessed uh, by this book as much as Chris and I have. Uh, We have really enjoyed diving into it. Um, and look forward to um, to finish it out too strongly. Uh, so let's look at Romans 16. I'll begin reading in verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but to all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ even before me. Interesting. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved uh, Stachus. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet these workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asynchronitis, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerit. Nereus, excuse me, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter... Greet you in the Lord. Now, he didn't really, he, well, no, he did really write the letter, uh, but he was doing dictation work uh, as Paul dictated. Uh, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that your gospel takes us somewhere. That your gospel is the answer to the issues of our lives. And Father, I thank you for this beautiful example of the community of God in Christ Jesus. I thank you, O God, that Paul took great 
time and painstaking detail to give us the names of those that he loved and that loved him. Those that partnered together for the gospel of Jesus and loved each other that the gospel might go forward. That they might be a living testimony to the world. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us a community like this and that we we would get the aroma of this community today and we would desire to move not only toward you, O God, but toward one another, caring, sacrificing, loving, and giving ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you guys last week that I was reading this book called The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, and I finished it this week. Um, it's a story written by Rod Dreher, and it's about him and his relationship with Ruthie as they grew up in rural Louisiana, small-town Louisiana. Uh, Ruthie fit in in small-town Louisiana. She, uh, by the time she was a teenager, could skin a deer and, and clean a chicken and all the things that uh, she uh, did on her farm and in the rural part of Louisiana. But Rod, however, even though he did those things, he didn't love those things. What he loved was writing and reading. And so he felt like an oddball growing up in this small rural town. And as soon as he got out of high school, he got out of that town. He went to college and did well. He got an incredible job in New York and then D.C. and then Philly. He was editing. He was writing. He was fulfilling his dream. But as he would go back to that small town to see Ruthie and their family, he would be attracted by what he saw. As he watched the small town people loving each other, being there for each other, caring for one another, sacrificing for one another, and even loving on his family when they went through a hard time, it so drew him, it was so attractive that he ends up quitting his job and moving back to the small town with his wife and children. And as you're reading this book, I know the intent of Rod Dreher was to draw you in and to make you hungry for small-town community. But as I read this, it had a different effect. As I read the book, it made me ask the question, why should a small town have the corner of the market on community? The church should have that. The church of Jesus Christ, our community, the way we love each other, should be so attractive that those on the outside that don't even believe or embrace our theology, those that don't even know it, and maybe those that do know it and reject it, should be so overwhelmed by the way we love each other inside the church that they should want to be part of it, even if it means bearing the theology and the teaching of the church, to the point that maybe one day, someday, they might embrace it too. Friends, that is why God created the church and redeemed the church. That's what He wants from us. I heard a statistic this week that not too long ago, devoted church members would attend church 3.4 times a month. I don't know how you get that um, figure, but that's what I read. Today, that figure, devoted church people attend church about 1.3 times a month. Those of us that see ourselves as committed members show up about 1.3 times a month. And whereas there are many things that sadden me about that, there's a primary thing that saddens me, and it is as long as we're doing that, there is no way that we can really be the church. We can go to church, but we won't be the church. 
Because to be the church, and something that was so attractive about this little town in Louisiana was the people were there and they had to live by each other, see each other, live in relation each other, uh, with each other whether they liked it or not. And that is the church. That's what we must be, and yet everything presses against it, doesn't it? I get it. I'm not browbeating you. This sermon is not about beating you over the head to come to church more often. However, I hope that is one of the outcomes of that. Uh, but the reality is that, that, that we can come to church and not be the church. And so that's not the answer either, just to come to church. Roger uh, points to this in this, this book that I read. He, he said, those of us who have moved away from our small towns are not necessarily callow and ungrateful people. I love that. We live in a time and place in which we are conditioned to leave our hometowns. Our schools tell us, um, our schools tell our young people to follow their professional bliss wherever it takes them. Our economy awards, uh, rewards companies and people who have no loyalty to place. The stories that shape moral imagination of our young, chiefly by film and television, are told by outsiders who are dissatisfied and lit out for elsewhere to find happiness and good fortune. He's dead on. You see, the the whole movement of our culture is to move away, is to look out for you, to not care about your neighbor more than yourself, but to follow your dreams wherever those dreams take you and then bear with the people that are around you wherever your dreams take you. But we must press into the Word of God here. And I want you to hear that, that I'm, what I'm saying this morning is what the Scriptures are saying, and it's so much more than you need community. But it's more of you and I need to be obedient to what God has called us to and redeemed us for, not just for us, but for others. When we walk in disobedience to the Word of God, it doesn't just affect us, but it affects our neighbors. Wendell Berry put it like this. He said, when a community loses its memory, its members no longer know one another. How can they know one another if they have forgotten or have never learned one another's stories? If they do not know one another's stories, how can they know whether or not to trust one another? People who do not trust one another do not help one another. And moreover, they fear one another. And this is our predicament now. I'm telling you, you could not summarize the Church of Memphis, Tennessee any better than that quote. Because we have separated from one another, according to class, according to race, according to culture, according to hobbies, according to political commitment, whatever, because we've so segregated ourselves into little uh, mono-ethnic, mono-class, mono-everything subcultures. We don't know each other, but the problem is when we don't know each other and we don't know our stories, we're afraid of each other. I mean, I heard it just yesterday. Uh, one of our men in our church was going to do a long bike ride for exercise, and, and he told a friend where he was going to go, a part of town that he was going to ride through, and the, and, and the friend said, I'm not riding through that part of town. Now, where in the world did he get this, this preconceived idea that to ride a bike through this part of town means you're going to... It's all fear. It's because they don't know anybody in that neighborhood. 
And so they assume, well, everybody in that neighborhood has got to be. And, I, and I've seen it too. I've invited people that, that live just up the road downtown. I'm like, I'm not coming downtown. <laughs> Why? Because the police have made sure that certain kinds of people stay in their part of town. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so we, we live like this in the church and we live like this in our city. And it's not just that we don't know each other. We're scared of each other. And that's why the church must be a radical new community. We must be different. The church is to be the place that we live out the gospel story together. Where there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male nor female, where we don't look at each other's color of skin or part of town, but we look at one thing, and that is, do we love Jesus? And if we love Jesus, then we have something more in common than we have not in common. And that's gospel community and that's to be the church. So how do we get there? Well, first of all, we've got to, to understand that we all need to be known and loved and we all need to know and love. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? We all need to know and love and be known and loved. Well, let me tell you how powerful this is. Lucy Berry, our elementary uh, teacher, took one of our high school students, Brittany, to a... a um, for the Kingdom retreat a couple of weeks ago. And it was either Friday or Saturday night. Um, the uh, speaker said, I want everybody in here to stand up if you've grown up without a father. And a lot of people stood up. There's epidemic in our culture. And he said this. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to turn the lights up. And we, we've told our male counselors, now there's, there's nothing weird about this, but we've told our male counselors to come around to you who have stood up and said you've grown up without a father and they're going to look you in the face and they're going to say, I love you. And you are worth something. You're made in the image of God and you are special because of that. And they're going to hug you. I mean, this was all like stage plan. They did that. The whole room was in tears. Why? Because this was just some emotional thing that you do at church camp? No, because we are made in the image of a God who exists in relationship. I mean, we were fashioned after God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, the Trinity. Now what does that mean? I have no clue other than to say that they must love each other so much that the bond must be so tight that there's no distinction between them. That there's, there's such self-dying love for the other that they, to exist without the other would mean that God would not be God. Now do you understand that that's exactly how we are as a human race? We can't change that reality. It doesn't matter if culture's telling you, be for yourself, go for yourself, you don't need anybody, just live for you. It doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what Hollywood believes. It doesn't matter what you believe. You cannot get out of this whole reality that in the, the very center of your DNA is a need to be known and loved and to know and to love. This is why Paul simply states in, in, in verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 
Greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm going to make a confession here. I have never studied the last chapter of Romans until the last couple of weeks. I've skipped over it. Oh yeah, greet what Trophonus and Trophon. I mean, whatever. Julia, yeah, come on. Holy kiss, yeah. I, I mean, come on. You can't preach that. Finally this week, I believed my own theology, and I said, well, it wouldn't be in the Word of God unless there was something here. And what I have realized this week is that this is Romans. (laughs) This is the Gospel. This is the whole... Paul didn't give us all that theology so that we could debate one another and divide over the issues of what he was teaching in Romans 8, 9, and 10. He gave us this theology that we might give each other a holy kiss. He gave us this theology that we might actually love each other. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's so hard not to. I mean, listen to 1 Peter 4.8. Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what family love does? Isn't that what church love should do? We're not focused on the sin of the person. We're focused on the person. We love you. Why? Because you're ours. (laughs) We love you and we're not going to get up on you because we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can't just push each other to the side. There's a higher law being, being exhibited there. We are made in the image of God and therefore we love one another. Yes, sin covers a multi, or excuse me, love covers a multitude of sins. Dear friends, are you drawing from the love of God and loving somebody beyond their sins this morning? Think of somebody that you're not. Think of somebody whose sin has gotten so big in your heart that you've stopped loving them. Remember the love of God towards you and love them because that is the essence of what it is to be the church because we all need to be known and loved. You see, here's the reality. Christian love can heal this world because it's what we all need. It's not this soft thing that we do. Christian love literally can heal this world. Why? Because it's what everybody in this world needs. Not everybody needs a rational argument about the existence of God. Everybody needs a, 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 a very tangible community of people that prove there is a God by the way they love. It's why Jesus simply stated, the whole world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love each other. Man, we spend so much money and time on all these other strategies. Just love each other. That's just what Jesus said. That's the program of the church. And it will change the world. Secondly, Christian relationship and community is driven by purpose and mission. Two weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, my middle daughter, Ashley, and, and Nate gave Rachel and I our, our third grandson, their first son or first child. Um, that has rocked our world, changed our lives yet again. I don't know how many times your life can be changed, but uh, it seems like each, each big um, kind of marker does that. Well, this week, I can't remember what morning it was, but Ashley texted her, called Rachel, and and said, I got two hours of sleep last night. You know, new baby. 
Baby woke up and decided, you hadn't been eating a whole lot, woke up one night and said, I'm ready to eat. And ate the whole night, you know, put on 15 pounds probably in one night. Well, what did Rachel do? She canceled everything she had going that day, and she went to Ashley's house, and she kept Silas so that Ashley could sleep. Now, why? Why? I mean, parents, why do we make the sacrifices that we make? I saw it the moment. I love, I tell you, watching my daughters have babies, or my two oldest, not yet my youngest, uh, have babies, has been so fascinating because it's a mystery to them, especially on their first. They're wondering, how could I love, I mean, I don't know, I mean, am I going to be that parent that doesn't love their baby? And, you know, I just don't know. I mean, I'm carrying this thing around, and, I, and, I, and you know, right now I'm like, yeah, just wait. And I mean, the moment that they're holding it, you see it on their faces, they are undone by love. They're undone by this, this person that God has given them that they just birthed. And the whole direction of their lives goes another way. Why? Because family is driven by mission and purpose. There's no law for it. You, you don't tell a grandmother, okay, now, when your daughter calls you and said two hours of sleep, then you better, you got to can't, okay, okay, I remember that. That was page 300 in that book I read. You do it. Why? Because of love, because you're serving a higher mission. That's exactly what goes on with the kingdom of God. Why would we love each other? Why would we, why would we change what we do as a profession? Why would we change where we live? Why would we make any sacrifices for anybody in this room? Why would we answer phone calls late at night? Why would we do these things? Because we're on mission together to be the people of God because this God of glory who, who was obligated only to give us what our sins deserve, didn't, but gave us exactly what our sins didn't deserve, love and sacrifice and mercy and grace. And because of that, there's this mission. You see it all throughout. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. Now what is he doing? Is this some legalistic thing? Oh, she's such a good church member. No! Phoebe is some businesswoman who loves Jesus enough that he said, she, she said, okay, Paul, I will take the letter of Romans to Rome for you. And he entrusts it to her. Why? Because he knows that she is as committed to the mission as he is, and therefore their brother and sister in Christ Jesus. Just go through... Uh, greet Adronicus and Junior, my, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners... They're here with me because they love Jesus too. Greet Ampelitis, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. He just goes on and on and on. You see, they are serving together for the Lord. Now, this is where it gets tricky, especially in our day. If I were to ask you how many people in here have ever felt used by a church leader or by a church, I'm not going to get you to raise your hand, but I promise you there'd be a lot of people. Why? Because to live on mission and to love each other is tough. It's just like a family. I was thinking this week about you know the, the, the story that Jesus told about the, the two sons, the two brothers. The younger brother goes to his dad, uses him, says, I want my inheritance now. 
He's using his father for his father's money. And then we get to the end of the story, and the, the older son, or yeah, and the, and the elder brother seems to be so obedient and, and all this, but we find out when the, when the father starts spending his inheritance, the older brother's inheritance, on the younger son who went off and squandered everything, that all of a sudden the elder brother is ticked off. And why? Because he too is using his father for his father's money and inheritance. And as the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 17, I mean, all, our hearts are deceitful above all things, and there is no father who has ever had pure love for his sons because we as parents use our children, don't we? It's where our anger comes from when they don't make us look as good as we think they should make us look in public, in a restaurant maybe, at church. I mean, I'm surprised my children still have ears from uh, sitting in church and uh, acting up. And a lot of that is is good discipline, but a lot of that is you're not going to make me look like a fool. Been there, done that. And so in the church, it's the same exact way. Um, It's tough. And yet, uh, as Jeff White said, we've got to be on mission. I love what he said. He said, Harvey Kahn was fond of saying that the church is not something to which you go, it's a people who go. Uh, and I would, you know, and that, I'll keep reading. That statement carries with it the conviction that if a church and the denomination of which it is a part are to be healthy, mission must be that which it is obsessed A church and denomination will have plenty of concerns, but its obsession must be mission. And here's I would I would qualify, can't believe it, Harvey Kahn, the brilliant Harvey Kahn, with this passage, not necessarily my perspective, and say this. The church just can't have the mission on focus because the mission is people. And so you can't run over people in the name of fulfilling the mission. This is how Jesus said to fulfill the mission. He said, if you see your neighbor naked clothing, if your neighbor's hungry, give him something to eat. If your neighbor goes to jail, go visiting. If your neighbor is thirsty, give him something to drink. If you're walking along and you see your neighbor beat up, left for dead on the side of the road, then that becomes your biggest program and responsibility and obligation in that moment. Why? Because Jesus did the same for you. And so, community is not the end goal, okay? Just having friends is not the end goal. That can be a very selfish thing. Because we can say, okay, you know, uh, it's your job to love me. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in this last point. But it's your job to love me. No. Just having friends and having community is not the end goal. But loving people toward Jesus for His glory is the end goal. Making disciples of Christ through living relationship, sacrificial relationship with one another. Discipleship is not a program, it's a lifestyle of loving. You can't programatize, you can't, there's no way to structure discipleship completely and purely. Why? Because it's simply giving yourself to somebody else for the long haul and letting your love for Jesus wear off on them. That's what discipleship is. And so Christian relationship and community is driven by purpose and mission. The mission of the church is to bring God glory by loving people to Him. And then thirdly, 
Gospel doctrine takes us to God and to one another. Look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. And then he says this, avoid them. That doesn't sound very Christian. We're supposed to avoid some people? Yeah, who are they? It's not homosexuals. It's not people that dress different from you. It's not drunkards. It's not people, it's, it's not the rich or the wealthy. It's not, no. Who are we supposed to avoid? We're supposed to avoid those people that mess with the doctrine of the gospel. Why? Because the doctrine of the gospel is the very power to make you who is turned in on yourself and me who is turned in on myself turn outward toward God and others. You see, the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is, is to give a platform for the Spirit of Christ to make you, who is a self-centered person, become a loving person. That's why the very first fruit is love. The very first fruit. What, what God is saying in His Word is, what God is up to in your life is to make you a loving person. Do you want to know what He's doing in your life right now? He is making you a more loving person. Are you resisting? He's humbling you to depend upon Him, to receive His grace that you might go love somebody else. See, that is what the doctrine of, of the Gospel is all about. The whole question of the Gospel of Jesus, the, the question that the Gospel answers is this, where does my righteousness come from? That's what Paul has, has, has asked throughout uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans, and he's answered it. Where do we get our righteousness? It's not through religion. It's not by going out and appeasing God by how good you live in that day, by what you give up and what you do. No. But it's through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now listen up. If you've been sleeping this whole time, if you've heard nothing else I've said, please hear this. Here's the gospel. This is what gets you over you and into God and into the lives of other people right here. Here's how we live. Every person that is born, including my perfect grandson Silas, who's not so perfect, is born with, it's like a pump. Have you ever seen a pump? You know, you flooded a, a bathroom or something and you take a pump and you put it down and it has this hose and it, it takes the water somewhere else. All of us are born with this pump and we're all thirsty. And so here we are in relationship. Okay, it's your job to make me feel good about me. Now, plug it in, I'll start doing it. All right, I just made you breakfast. Uh, you didn't, you didn't, you're so unthankful. I just, I just served in the nursery. Somebody better notice, I just served in the nursery. I mean, do you see it? This is what we do. And yet, here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, through Jesus Christ... He is the one who came. He is the one who appeased God for us by living under the law for us. He obeyed God for us. His righteous work of obeying every aspect of the law was meant for our bank account and our credit. And then He went to the cross and became our sin. And here's what, we, here's what God does when we believe the gospel of Jesus. When we say yes to Jesus, God counts us as if we had obeyed the law perfectly 
and as if we had never sinned. That's crazy. But that's the gospel that Paul has fought for and written for 11 chapters in Romans. And so now, here's what we do. We take that pump and we say, the God of heaven and earth, the one whom I was created to live for and please and worship, counts me as righteous and beautiful and acceptable and nothing can ever change it because he does so based on the finished work of Jesus. And so when I am putting the the pump of my heart and soul to God, here's what happens. I don't need you to tell me how good I am. It's not your job to tell me how good I am. It's now my job to love you until you know the love of God. It's my job to let you understand a love that is greater than what you're looking for in, in sex, drugs, music, work, hobbies, beauty, books, intellect, resume. It's an identity that is greater because nothing can change it and it's perfect. It can't be improved on. And it's everything that you're looking for. And so when we as a people turn the pump of our hearts toward God and live by faith in what He has done for us daily, then all of a sudden I can love you when you are bad to me. I love what Ed Welch says. He said this, he said, who am I? He's asking the question, who am I? I'm beloved by God. He loves me more than I love Him. And now I get to love others more than they love me. Oh, it's so simple and yet so profound. It's what Paul was saying in Romans 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Why? Why do we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak? Because we have the gospel to do it. What Christian maturity looks like is, I don't look to you to to give me an identity, I look to Jesus. The most mature person in the church is the one who doesn't look to those around them to make them feel good about them, but who looks to God because they know He's going to make them feel good about Him. And then you're going to feel good about you because He loves you in Christ Jesus. That's Christian maturity. It's not knowing more than anybody else. In fact, the people I've met people that know more than anybody else I've ever met in terms of the Bible, in terms of theology, but they are the most insecure, immature people, needy people. And if you try to disagree with them, oh, buddy. Why? Because they know about God, but they don't know God. And what Christian maturity is, is to get the doctrine of Romans, which is you can't get any deeper than that. You can't get any more full than that. But you do it that you might love Him and you might love somebody else. You see, we as the church have a history, and that history is that we've been able to be abused and used, and we still keep going. You know what, Memphis, Tennessee needs a body of people who are ready to be used and abused. we got big issues in this city. Who's going to change them? Who's going to say, here am I, send me? Only a body of people whose hearts are so connected to Jesus, who are in union with Christ, as Paul lays out in Romans, that we don't need anything. 
We don't need money or fame or private time because we have Jesus. And when we have Him, we need nothing else because we have everything we need. Do you have everything you need? Do you have everything you need this morning? Or are you going from one relationship to another, one bed to another, one job to another, one degree to another, one whatever to another, one drug, one bottle, one... Let me tell you, it won't end until it ends with Christ. Would you end it this morning? Would you end it this morning? Would you give your heart to Jesus and say, I'm done putting the pump of my soul on crap that is not going to satisfy me. I'm tired of eating crap. Yeah, I just said that. (laughs) Not in my notes. But I could use a word much harsher than that. Because that's what we do. And it's how we live. Are you ready to eat real food? Are you ready to eat real food? Are you ready to drink from a well that you, you, that you will never be thirsty again because you've got all you need in Him? Would you come to Jesus this morning? You say, I've been a Christian all my... Then come to Jesus this morning again and drink of Him anew and fresh. Would you come to Jesus this morning? Is He yours this morning? Do you believe it today? Oh, may downtown church know Jesus and love Jesus And may we love Him boldly that we might love each other. And we might love the world and they might know the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank You for this message of the Gospel. I thank You for the privilege of preaching it, for believing it. I thank You for Your patience with me when I don't believe it. When Jesus, You are small to me and my sin is large. When my need for approval overcomes my love for You and the satisfaction of the gospel. Revive my soul this morning. May I come to you again this morning. You know I need it. And God, may we all just turn our hearts to you and believe that there's nothing we can do, but you have done it all. Thank you, Jesus. We give ourselves to you now. In your name we pray. Amen.